How you doing? Welcome to episode 56 Tony Two Bags, Alvarez, Ronnie Paulino, Jim Gott, and Tim Drummond Memorial episode of the Yins Above Replacement Podcast I am, as always, Rob Beer Temple and I still cover the Pirates for the Athletic here in Pittsburgh And I am joined by the brilliant Stephen J. Nesbitt Rob, we have some... You know, bright, uh, bright hopes in the air. We have the potential of baseball coming back in the near future. And we at The Athletic are having... If you say so, okay. A hell of a lot of fun this week with a memorabilia week, which is something that just about every sports fan can connect to on some level. And I wanted to start you off with a little story. Now, Rob, how old were you when Maz hit the home run in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series? I was negative five. Good. I was ne- <laughs> negative more than that. 31. Than- <laughs> <laughs> so we all know the story. We've seen the video. This is one of the most famous uh, home runs in baseball history. The, the walk-off winner in Game 7 over the Yankees. And we've seen photos. And Rob, I want to ask you, do you have any clue what happened to the jersey he was wearing that day? I know for a fact that he did not like gestured anybody saying don't rip this off <laughs> but that's all i know the buzzer hide the buzzer yes <laughs> oh man if we uncovered that maz was wearing a buzzer in game seven that would really really piss off the crushing. yankees so i'm glad you don't know what happened because it helps me tell the story uh, <laughs> but a lot of people don't know what happened with this jersey because for 50 years after that game no one ever talked about that jersey and no one ever revealed publicly where it was. And in 2010, it comes out that this doctor over here in Squirrel Hill, my neck of the woods, says, you know what? I actually have the jersey. Uh, mm. There's a big front page story in the Post-Gazette. And he tells a story of, of this really awesome story, actually. it's um, He's... He's driving home from work one Friday afternoon around 1985, and he stops by the, his friend's house. This guy named is Robert Probola. Everyone calls him Pro, so we will too. So right. he stops by this guy's house. Pro is about to wash the car, and so this doctor, um, Mitch, we'll call him because that's his name. Mitch says, <laughs> you know, Pro, how you doing? What, what are you up to? You know, I'm washing the car. And he sees he's got this white rag in his hand, and he's about to to you know soap up the car with it and he says what is that and pro says ah it's just you know an old jersey i couldn't find any rags inside and so he's like let me see that so pro tosses it over to mitch and and uh, he holds it up he says hold on this is this is an old pirates jersey and he recognizes it's a sleeveless pirates jersey just the, the very kind that uh in 1960 pirates wore uh i think they're just about the only at least the first. I don't know if they're the only sleeveless vest-wearing World Series winner. And he says, "Hold on, this this is a number nine. This is a Mazeroski jersey. You can't just you can't just yeah. wash your car with this thing." And Pro shrugs and he says, "All right, well, yeah, you can have it." So Mitch takes it home and he's 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 stoked, right? He's like a young sports collector and he says, "This is incredible that um, I have this Maz jersey from the World Series year." So. Is, it's pretty hard to really nail down exact things about jerseys back in that day, right? We know that they had home jerseys and they had away jerseys, but uh, and this was a home jersey, this is a white one, but it was pretty unclear how 
um, how many they had, how frequently it was used. Did they have their own one for the playoffs? Was there a new one with patches for the World Series? You have old photos, and that's kind of your best bet. But this this guy, Mitch, was watching and tracking this over the years and said, you know, I've listened to every Maz interview. I've read everything he's ever he's ever said about Game 7, and he's only asked about Game 7, right? That's the only thing people would ever interview him about. And he never mentions the uniform. He mentions the bat. He mentions the ball, he mentioned the spikes, he mentioned home plate, and the whole celebration that happens, but never the jersey. So the more this guy thinks about it, the more he thinks, what if I've got the jersey? What if this one that I saved from the car wash is the jersey that Maz is wearing when he was rounding home plate, or rounding, rounding the bases and, and, and getting mobbed at home plate? He looks closer at this thing, and it's, it's definitely authentic. It's got all the tags, it's got you know, washing instructions on it. And it says, there's a little tag, it says set one 1960. And the longer he goes without somebody else saying, I've got the jersey and I'm, you know, putting it in a museum or something, um, the long, the more he starts to think, I think, I think I've got it actually. I think this is it. And so right around the year 2000, this is just before Maz gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. This guy decides you know, I've got to get this jersey in front of him, and I want to see if he'll uh, confirm that it's the jersey he was wearing that day. So he goes to an autograph signing out at Robert Morris University, and he puts this down in front of Maz. I've got a picture. This is all going to be in a story that runs uh, today, actually. You guys can check it out. The full story, uh, no holds barred, and there's a picture of Maz with this jersey holding it up, and he signs the jersey. And he doesn't pull any punches here. He says... Uniform worn by me in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series. Signed, Bill Mazeroski. That's all in the uniform. And this guy's like, incredible, I've got the jersey. This is so cool. No one, you know, 50 years later, no one has ever, uh, at that point it's 40 years, but he gets to the 50-year mark before this front-page story comes out, and no one's ever, you know, proved him wrong. No one's ever debunked it. And Maz has had multiple opportunities to to tell him he's wrong and he, and he just hasn't. So this guy's like, what a cool story. You know, I'm never going to give this thing away. It's a, it's a link between me and pro. Uh, one part I neglected to mention was pro who passed away in 2002 was a part-time baseball scout. He was a part-time scout for the Indians and he helped sign sudden Sam McDowell out of central Catholic high school. And he later worked for the pirates. So it's not out of the question that he could have gotten his hands on some pretty cool pirates, uh, memorabilia. And so this guy says, you know, I've got it. And Maz signed it. And this tells me this is the real thing. So what a cool story, Rob. Um, unbelievable. Uh, and that's where we're going to live. No, I'm just kidding. There's a mystery around this. And that's why my headline says the mystery. And the mystery of it is, well, I got on the phone with Bill Mazeroski this week. And Bill Mazeroski said, yeah, I read that front page story in the Post-Gazette. And I said... He ain't got that jersey. I've got that jersey. So today, there is a Bill Mazeroski jersey that has been donated to the Heinz History Center. And by all accounts, it is the authentic one. But which one is the real jersey? I will say it's not as cut and dried as you may think. Mazeroski or Mitch, who's got the real one. Rob, you're going to have to read the story and see. This is the. This is why we love memorabilia. How can you prove? It's now sixty years after the fact. This year, how do you prove that your jersey is not the real one, or it is? And 
jerseys aren't made the same way they were way back when. So that's my mystery for you today, Rob. You got to click the story to find out the rest. I'm going to say, I, you know, I, I got a uh, 1960 Game 7 Mazeroski jersey downstairs in my, <laughs> my game room. It only looks like it's a T-shirt from Kmart that I ripped off the sleeves. It, just don't be fooled by that. The fabric was a lot thinner back in the 60s. That's why it looks that way. That's pretty cool, though. That, uh, that you know, and, and that's part of the thing, too. It, you know, it, it first of all, I'm, I'm – I didn't know how to react when the guy was going to wash the car because you know for damn sure if that was a terrible towel, he'd oh. never use that to wash the car. No chance. But Maz jersey, yeah, all right, we'll use that. <laughs> so that's kind of what we're up against in Pirates Land sometimes. But how cool is it that uh, that that jersey is? You know, and you know you see that a lot too with different because uh, I guess back then too the, the thing about it is there were fewer. At least I remember hearing this once. I'm not sure if it's a fact. There were fewer made that, you know, now players, you know, there's like a warm weather jersey, a cold weather jersey. Right, they change them all the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, the 17 different special alternate jerseys for the day of the week and the, but, but back then you had your home white and and your road gray and you might have a backup of that if you got it dirty or something, but that was about it. Yeah. So by, by all accounts here, both of these jerseys are, um, authentic 1960 jerseys. But what what is so funny to me and why why this is such a captivating mystery for me is for 50 years, we don't get a whisper of anyone owning this jersey. And then finally, this newspaper <laughs> article comes out and we've suddenly got two people Everybody saying – two people saying they have it. And they both have pretty compelling cases in that the other one demands some suspension of disbelief, right? Are you going to mm-hmm. believe – are you going to believe that Bill Mazeroski had – this famous jersey sitting in his basement for 50 years and never thought about taking it out, never thought about showing it to the world, never thought about talking about it, never thought about selling it for a lot of money? Or are you going to believe that this guy saved it from a car wash and it just so happened to be the, you know, the right one? So there are a lot of, a lot of good cases on both sides. Great evidence, great proof. We got smoking guns. We've got it all. <laughs> and you're going to have to check it out on theathletic.com. There you go. Were you a big memorabilia, memorabilia head? Were you a like a sneaker head, I guess? Were you big on collecting <laughs> stuff over the years? Yeah, I've kind of gone. I, I was just, I was just going to say, yeah, it's kind of gone in like fits and starts with me. Um, I guess early on, yeah, I did collect. Like, I still have like ticket stubs, and and I, I remember back in the day, the Pittsburgh Press put out a thing where every. I think it was every day in the paper, there'd be like this, uh, it was like a page. You, you would assemble a book. It was a different Steelers player and it was during the Super Bowl years and there'd be like a different, you know, page and, and you could then order off this little plastic vinyl, you know, bookcase cover yeah. thing that you would like a little mini binder that you would put them inside. And I still have that, I think somewhere. And some of the pages are autographed because we went to training camp one year back when you could go to training camp and, 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 and actually get within three foot of a player and not be taken away by security or something and get an autograph. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I have that somewhere, but I don't have a ton of stuff. I have stuff that like, I've kept stuff that, you know, I guess that, that's more meaningful to me. I have a chunk of the goalpost downstairs from. Beaver Stadium, uh, I think it was my freshman year in college, after the West Virginia game. Um, it became a thing that year for the students. It was all across the country, but it was pretty heavy. Just ripping down the goalposts. Yeah. And then 
you know, and eventually they put police, you know, on horses around the goalpost and that stopped. But one year we ripped down the goalpost and then we just sort of carried it onto campus and nobody knew what to do with it. We're like, well, we got this goalpost. And then someone produced a saw and they started hacking it up. So I got a, like a, you know, eight inch chunk of, of goalpost at home here. Um, stuff, goofy stuff. I like goofy, clicking yeah. goofy stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, to, to cut in on you with the football, um, talking about football, I, I have never been a huge memorabilia guy. I've, I've, I've had a couple things I've held onto that, that mean a lot to me. And most of them are, are baseball related. The one silly, terrible, um, illegal thing I probably did, uh, surrounding baseball or football was when I was covering Michigan football, they went to the sugar bowl. Um, and this must've been what, 2011. Yeah. I think 2011. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we went down and this is a great group of writers I'm with. We're having a good time. There's this big media room, work room, and they have a huge banner and it's, it's, it's really massive. It's hanging on the wall and it says, you know, sugar bowl, 2011, uh, Michigan, Virginia tech. And, I walked past it once just to see how well it was hanging. I tugged a corner of it. <laughs> just And again, not much. And I, I swear I've never stolen anything in my life other than this. Give it a little tug and the whole, that whole side comes down. And Ooh. I'm like, oh, no. This thing, I it's, it's seriously hung like 20 feet off the ground. And so I can't get it back up there. So I either leave it like this or, you know, I just tug the other side and pull it all the way down. So we did that. We folded it up. We took it. I still have it in my office. I'm looking at it right now. And <laughs> I don't think anyone needed it beyond that week, but the, the media room was never the same. I'll be honest. What our real goal was, and this is, you know, attempted crime and it, it didn't happen. Every day after the press conferences, they would take the, the helmets uh, that were on the table for, you know, a display of, you know, Michigan head coach. Here's the helmet. Virginia Tech head coach, here's a helmet. And they would stick them simply under sort of the, uh, under the table. They had that like long, um, cloth, whatever covering, oh, uh, yeah. table, mm-hmm. tablecloth covering. And so it was hidden under there, but we noticed they, they put it there every day and they leave. <laughs> so we're like, how good are the security cameras in here? Could we just pull one of those? <laughs> Surely Mr. Michigan wouldn't miss, you know, one helmet. So we, we, that was our original plan and we ended up not doing that, but we did get the banner. And I've held on to it. I did. I put it up in my dorm room for a while. And now that I'm, you know, old and married, I, I feel like it's probably not appropriate for me to just put a random 2011 Sugar Bowl thing up. Um, but uh, but that was it. That was my real my real heist. Have you? Because being on the job, we have access to a lot of stuff. Now, I would like to say, since going pro, I have I have not stolen anything from anywhere. Uh, you even have from time to time, if you're watching batting practice, some guy might toss a ball at you just to see if you're paying attention. I, I haven't even held on to any of those. Have you had any experiences of, of lifting something or thinking of lifting something from a, a locker room or clubhouse? Well, I have had experiences of, of players tossing balls at me, but it wasn't to see if I was paying attention. Actually, I think they were hope I wasn't paying attention when they threw the balls. <laughs> but, um, but yes, now that, um, now that the statute of limitations, I, I hope has passed, I can tell the story and, uh, it involves my, my younger brother and it involves, uh, one of my best friends in the world and he's probably listening. Oh, that would be Marty Caridi. And I've now implicated all three of us. Um, <laughs> it was in the early eighties. I was still in high school at the time. Uh, so 82 ish, 1983 maybe, but probably 82. Um, so I was kind of young, but stupid. And 
the three of us, well, actually usually more than that, it would be about five or six of us actually would go to um, the games down at the Civic Arena to watch the Pittsburgh Spirit, which was oh, uh, a yeah. major indoor soccer league, um, which was, you know, if, if people were unfamiliar with the concept, you've probably seen indoor football, picture soccer on a hockey rink inside with the glass just balls whizzing at 100 miles an hour and bouncing off people's bodies. And it was really cool. So plus the tickets were like, you know, two bucks or something. So we could afford that. So we went to a lot of games and they had uh, guys like Stan Terlecki, who um, was the star of the team. He was Polish, uh, fantastic goal scorer. Uh, Drago Dombovic, who I don't think spoke much English, uh, had goofy hair. It was kind of like hair was coming out of his head. He just had like patches of hair sticking straight up off of his head. It was very strange. Um, you know, Paul Child, Graham Fife, Hal Partenheimer, just lots of guys. Um, Joe Papaleo was the goaltender. So, these, yeah, this was kind of a – it was a fun thing to do. We were in high school. We would go out and, you know, the weekends and go see a game. And then um, one time, you know, after the game had ended, you, you, we just kind of wander around the Civic Arena. And one time we saw these uh, stairs – leading down from the main concourse. And we're like, well, uh, you know, I wonder where that goes. It's a stairway. You know, so we, so we go down the stairs. There's nobody there. Get to the bottom of the stairs. There was like a, I think an arena employee or whatever, like an usher or something. And he's just standing there. We kind of, kind of walked casually past him and held our breath and not, he didn't say anything. So we kept going. We went down a hallway, kept going. You see some people, you know, the usual people you see in the bowels of a stadium, you know, vendors and and just hangers on and whatnot. So we just kind of kept going. And finally we came to this area where um there was like a little stanchion kind of set up, yeah. a little barrier, and these double doors. And there were some people there, uh girlfriends, family, it looked like, of the players. We thought, huh, we're down here in the bowels of the stadium. Here's like, you know, some obviously family-type looking people. I wonder if the locker room is around here. So we're just kind of poking around a little bit. I see a door. Hey, let's open the door. We go open the door. We creep down. And now the hallway is a lot narrower. Yeah. And we're kind of winding and turning corners. And finally, we get to the end and there's another door. And I figure, well, you know, our luck is held this long. Open the door and we're in the locker room. Last game of the season had just been played. So it was the end of the year. And in front of me was one of those big cart kind of things that the kind of things that now I use to move my girls in and out of their dorms at college. But back then it was being used to gather laundry. In this case, the uniforms from the games they had just played. I looked at Marty. Marty looked at me. We looked at my brother and he said, shit. Yeah. Sorry for the expletive there, but that's what he said as far as I remember. So we just reached in. It was like (laughs) Christmas morning. We reached in and I grabbed, uh, boy, we, I think we each came away with a, at least one jersey. I came up with a jersey and a pair of shorts. Uh, and then, you know, it was, it was kind of neat. So we got back to the car and we're giggling because we just made this heist on the last day of the year. We figured the team wasn't going to need these jerseys anymore. You know, the season was over. And then we start driving back to our houses, respective homes in the North Hills. They had just played a full game of indoor soccer, wearing those jerseys. The jerseys had not been washed. Mm. They were in the car. It was chilly. The windows were closed. 
not a pleasant drive. But I have Stan Turlecki's freaking jersey down in my game room. I also have Hal Partenheimer's jersey and his shorts somewhere, I think. Um, and I think my buddy Marty came up with uh, Paul Child's jersey, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so I don't know if those guys have those jerseys anymore, but I still have mine. And every now and then I bring – there was a time when I was in college I could still wear it because, you know, it was a, it's a, like an adult medium. And uh, I haven't been an adult medium for a while. But um, it, it's, it's – so it's down there now. And, and I will say that, yes, there was a time that once we discovered that magical route – um, a little later, I think maybe it would maybe in the next season, I guess, or whatever, we went down there again, and this time we came away with hockey sticks because the Penguins have been practicing. And uh, so somewhere, I don't think I have it anymore, but uh, Pat Boutet's hockey stick uh, is down in uh, was down in my basement. Ooh. So again, the, yeah, I guess technically it was theft, but uh, we, the last thing we we never thought about. The possibility of security cameras or anything because it's 1980, yeah. whatever. But, um, and we got this, not any, you know, I don't know how we got the hockey sticks out of the arena. That still, you know, amazes me that, that no one thought to say, Hey kids, uh, you're each carrying hockey sticks. And how did that happen after a soccer game? But, um, you know, we got, we got away with it. So there you I go. I love that. I love that. The, the most attainable, piece of memorabilia i think for most kids most fans is or at least was uh, the baseball card for a long time mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. i have one keepsake that isn't a baseball card other than the banner uh i have a signed ball from john smoltz um the reason for that being he was from lansing michigan he had a he had a field named after him there and he hosted a tournament every year a youth tournament where if you won you got invited down to uh, atlanta to watch a game to meet him and get the ball signed and uh and my brother's team won it and uh and our team won it as well and so we went down there a couple of different times and i try to keep it as professional as possible once i once i became a writer but when i saw when, when i saw john smoltz in i think it was the 2017 all-star game in miami i saw him in the press box and i was like i have to let him know that we met when i was you know 11 years old um, and I did, I got a picture. I sent it to my dad. He was like, John was like, you're making me feel so old that this kid that I sponsored his tournament, uh, is now, a, you know, a writer at 26 or seven at that point, um, at the all-star game. So that's one I've held on to, but more than anything, I have baseball cards and we occasionally would send them in, you know, one Yankees way or whatever it was to, to, to try to get an autograph of some sort. Uh, and there's, there's of course, there's this calculus you're running. You're like, there's a good chance I won't get this back. So should I not send my best card to, uh, to, for instance, I, this is not a baseball player. It's a hockey player. Eric Daze, uh, of the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, I had a card. It was my favorite card. It was very shiny. And I decided, you know what? He's not that important to me. I personally, I don't know the man. And so I'm not going to send my best, or I will send my best card to him because if I don't get it back, well, as we say in French, don't be, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Uh, however, uh, I had some Derek Jeter cards. He was my favorite player. I know that makes me very lame and very young, but he, uh, he was my favorite and I probably had 10 or 12 cards of his and I did not send my favorite one because I said the odds of me getting it back are so infinitesimally low that I'm going to send a, a mediocre card that if I get it signed, it'll be, you know, cool and valuable and I'll never sell it, but I don't mm-hmm. want to give up my best one. So 
Frank Thomas was my second favorite player. I probably had eight of him. And then you have all the Tigers who were so, so forgettable in the early 2000s that I didn't really have a favorite player. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of my, my baseball card history. I still have a bunch of them in a box here. And my twin brother and I used to, um, take all of our cards that my brothers had and my dad had and everything, a couple thousand of them, and we would organize them one day by, uh, alphabetically. We order them another day by sport. We order them another day by team color, by team name. And so baseball cards could take up, um, you could fill a whole childhood with just different ways of organizing them. And mm-hmm. so that was a pretty special part. And honestly, it's sad to me how, um, how much baseball cards have fallen off in the mainstream. Um, I haven't bought a pack of cards in, in, in probably 15 years. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's a bummer to me. And, and I know I'm sure in your childhood too, baseball cards were, or sports cards were, were a big part of that too, right? Did you ever flip cards? No. Oh, you mean trade no? cards? Well, no, or like, well, flip or, or like there were, there were a couple different things you could do. You could, uh, the easiest thing if you're in, and probably the least damaging is that you would, you would, just kind of let the card go and like flick your wrist a little bit. So it would kind of oh. flutter down like a leaf, but spin. No. And, um, and, and I forget the exact rules of it, but there was something like cards, ha- cards had to be touching or something. And if it touched, you got those cards. Huh. And no, I had, rules- I had respect for my cards. I wouldn't do that. But there were, and there, there were rules too. Like you just couldn't come at them with, a, you know, with a bunch of commons. You couldn't flip, you know, 29, you know, Joe Shabotniks or whatever. You had to have at least, you know, a, a certain number of, of good cards in your, in your, you know, your hands out of your seat. You're going to flip 50 cards. You know, maybe five of them had to be yeah. bona fide. You know, they couldn't all be American League bonehead DH guys or some bullshit like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you could like put the card, you would put the cards against the wall at like an angle, like a, you know, in the, and then you would throw cards and you, something like knocking them down or something. I, I, I vaguely remember all this stuff. I just remember, wow. you know, and then there was obviously, you know, putting cards in the spokes of your bike. So it would sound like a motorcycle, but it really yeah. didn't. But, um, yeah, there were short, things that we short lived yeah. fun there. Yeah. But then by the time I hit college, um, in, in the late eighties, that's when the card hobby really kind of exploded, like upper deck came along and those were just such gorgeous cards, real high quality cards, the hologram image and all that, you know, and, but then then you turn around and there's like 99 different card companies and they're each producing a thousand different cards every five minutes, it seemed. And, uh, I remember it was, it was, you know, I had missed the boat on Lemieux, obviously, because by then he had already played for several years and in buying a, a Mario Lemieux card, it was, was, you know, at that point it was just a, you know, it was a nice card, but it was kind of a common card. And if you wanted to buy his rookie card, it would have been way more than I had as just a college student. So I invested <laughs> a couple of bucks on like five or 10 rookie cards and I immediately encased them in, in plastic of Eric Lindros. Because I was convinced he was the next Lemieux, or at least I was mm-hmm. hoping he yep. was the next Lemieux. He was not. He was the next guy who had a lot of concussions and never really played. Yep. So I don't even think I have those those Lindros. I am staring here on my on my table at my stack because I I knew we were doing the show today. I went up and grabbed them and just looked through a, my stack of uh, Clementes. Not as 
I had a lot of Clemente. He was my favorite player as a kid. Yeah. And I had a ton, at least it seemed to me when I was a wee, just a wee lad of Clemente cards. And then I came back from college and I, for some reason, one year went to find them and they were gone. The Clementes were gone. And I, you know, it just seemed to me that my brother just had, you know, bought a lot of like Cure CDs and some Depeche Mode and stuff. Huh. And I didn't think he had the money to buy. Huh. Curious. But somehow he came across that money. And the missing Clementes and the, so I don't know. I, I didn't hold that against the Pesh Mode or the Cure. I did hold it against my brother for a number of years. But, uh, I've tried, you know, there was a, a, little, a little bit of a time there when I tried to restock some of my Clementes and that's easier said than done. Um, there's no way I'm ever getting the 1955 Tops Clemente rookie card, which is yeah. one of the holy grails of the sport. And I wrote about that today. Well, You're actually right. yesterday in, uh, in the athletic and Tops. Recently asked uh, 20 different pop artists to reimagine, I guess is the way to put it, um, a set of 20 different tops cards from different eras. One of those cards is the 55 Clemente. And um, just a gorgeous card. I'm looking at a, at a repro of it now. Uh, it's just a very simple card. Uh, Clemente with his, looks to be – it looks like a batting helmet. It's hard to say. It's like a drawing. It's not really a photo. Um, and he's got a little bit of a smile. And then over on his shoulder is him standing with the bat. Yep. And, uh, he got the Clemente signature, the little pirate's logo. It's the old red, big red hat. Not quite the, not the handsome pirate, not the bearded pirate, kind of a short-lived kind of early, well, it's yeah, 1955 he's a, he's a tough pirate. pirate. Yeah. And it just says Roberto Clemente, outfield Pittsburgh Pirates. So the card's worth, you know, $35,000 or, $355,000 or some, some huge amount of money. It's $350,000 in mint yeah. condition. Um, I do not have that card and I don't think I'll ever be getting that card, but I do have some yeah. other ones. I have the, my favorite is probably the 65 Clemente, a very simple set, but it's got the pirate's name on a little pennant and it's just a close up of like Clemente's face. Only it calls him Bob Clemente on it, not Roberto, certainly not Roberto Walker. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of those things that it's, it, they're nice to have. And I, I'm looking, just, you know, looking through them now and a few other ones I have here, like, you know, there's, there's a, a Lemieux and there's a couple Ken Griffey's and a Maz and some Nolan Ryan because he was always one of my favorite players. And I say, what, what am I going to do with them now? And I always thought at the time, well, I'll save these and then I'll cash them in and I'll put my kids through college. Well, the kids are pretty much through college now and I still have the cards. So I'm going to need a plan B. So maybe it's going to be <laughs> that uh, vacation home on Anna Maria Island. There you go. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a really neat story, um, about the Clemente, the, the reimagined, um, mm -hmm. because it's, it's so rare now that we see trading cards, uh, back in, sort of back in our lives. There's a, yeah. there's a guy, I'm sure many of you have seen it, uh, Mike Oz at, at Yahoo, who, will grab two packs of cards and go to the winter meetings or an all-star game or something and just pull aside somebody famous, somebody you've heard of, and they'll open a pack of cards together and, and do a trade. And it's it's very fun, very sentimental, very nostalgic for so many of us. And uh, when I got this, um, when, I, when I saw this idea from, from Tops, I said, that's really neat because um, it's going to be really hard for them to ever crack back into the uh, into the mainstream like, like they once were. And so yeah. an idea like this where you take a card that's so simple um, and the simplicity is what's so beautiful about that card, I think, the 1955 card, 
and you say, hey, let's let's get some people to to take a crack at this. And I think there are some really neat ones uh, happening. My my two favorite were there's one uh, by Naturel, and it's uh, mm-hmm. basically the exact same card except it's just triangulated in every possible way. It's just it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a series of triangles. And I think it looks really cool. It keeps the simplicity and almost like increases the simplicity of it. And to me, it's it maintains that that beautiful nature of that uh, of that original card. And then the other one is is from Mr. Cartoon, great name. Um, who, <laughs> if I recall, this is the tattoo artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, just a very it's a very catchy, very eye popping. I mean, this this buccaneer has really taken a new, new look. Um, and, uh, and Clement is kind of peeking out from behind a ribbon of, of text. And I think it's, they're both beautiful cards. I don't know if they can match the, the original and certainly they never will, uh, be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars, but I thought this is a really cool exercise. And, and if I had the talent, I would, I would do a whole set of, you know, take the whole 1955 top set and, and do something special with it. I think that'd be really cool. Interesting. When I was talking with Mr. Tattoo, I, you know, Mr. Cartoon, I'm sorry. Mr. Cartoon <laughs> is a tattoo artist out in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, I said, well, you know, the first, one of my first questions to these guys was always like, tell me what you know about Clemente and, and, yeah. and, and what was your thought? How did you design a card knowing what you know or whatever you researched about him? And I was surprised because he, you know, he's, he's LA born and born and raised. But he said, you know, I actually, I know a lot about the Pirates. I'm really, I, he says, I consider myself kind of a little bit of a fan of the Pirates. There's a weird connection. He talked about his high school and his car club, uh, in, in San Pedro High School. And, um, his car club is called Pegasus. So they wear the Pirates caps because it's black and gold and pea. Huh. So their, their colors and all, you know, and he, and he says he, he remember when he was, um, I guess first had, had sort of hit a little bit of pop, you know, big nationwide popularity as a tattoo guy. He used to get, um, which probably still does, gets, he got, he got some, some swag from Mitchell and Ness. And one of them was a, um, collection of baseball, vintage baseball jerseys. And he got a, you know, I'll let him pick up the stories. I remember Mitchell and Ness would send that stuff to us. I, I got a wool pirates jacket. I said, fucking badass. I gave it to my buddy, who's a stupid Pirates and Steelers fan. Then I checked, and I saw it's worth $700. I was like, fuck, I should have kept it. <laughs> but he's close, like family, and he's a way bigger fan than I am, so it went to the right guy. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, this is I – mean, Mr. Mr. Cartoon was fantastic just talking to him because it, it, for him, not just the cards but tattoo and everything, there's the, the – the, the, you know, the – intersection of sport and culture and it's yeah. you know, a, a heritage thing you know he's obviously he was he's latino and, and and just talking about clemente and and what it meant to him uh, i think mr cartoon is i think he's 50 years old so he's you know my demographic he, you know he remembers clemente uh you know hearing about him as a player and, and, and things like that so it's it's just neat talking to people who you, you pictured people in different disciplines you know, a couple of them mentioned that, you know, for them, like, their art is, is their sport. That's yeah. their competition. That's, that's what they do. Um, you know, not just for their livelihood, but that's, it's part of them. And then, and, you know, a lot of ball players say the same kind of thing. So a lot of intersections of, of culture and, and sport and, and cards. And it was, yeah. it was, it was a very fun story. Now let's take a little break. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? 
Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically, that's a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So, if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Yins for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Yins, Y-I-N-Z, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Pivoting back to, to real life and, and the Buckos right now, we got some news uh, just uh, a few moments ago that Kevin Kramer had hip surgery. Do the breaking sound. <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> Cut in. Uh, he had hip surgery. He's going to be out four to six months. Uh, yeah. Who knows what uh, what baseball this season will look like uh, at that point. Um, but you can pretty much rule him out for, for 2020. Um, can't say he was going to have a huge impact Anyway, the way things were going, he was, I suppose, going to battle for that last bench spot. Uh, I don't think that changes a ton, but since we are a Turlock, California podcast, I figured it was worth mentioning. <laughs> so the, the Kevin Kramer news and then baseball were sort of slowly getting closer to something. Um, we've had you know reports over the past week that owners have this proposal ready, uh, players haven't uh, gotten an official final version of it, uh, according to my understanding of it. They did get uh, about 60, almost 70 pages of, of health um, guidelines and protocol. So there's, I guess that is the most important thing to start with is can we agree on on the standards of safety and how we're actually going to make this happen? And I was on, on the radio yesterday and, and um, I think it was Andrew Filipponi on the fan asked, um, you know, why why do we have to have all these precautions about spitting about change you know only one person can touch the ball change out the ball every time it's touched by somebody um if everyone's getting tested when you go in every day why is that necessary we know everyone's everyone's clean so in theory i think that idea is is fine right if you can ensure that everybody in the ballpark is totally safe and not only doesn't have symptoms but does not have coronavirus then then sure i, I guess you could you don't need to be quite so cautious however from what I've seen, Rob, and maybe you've seen differently, I think the proposal at this point is that uh, is that the testing is is twenty eight or forty eight hour uh, twenty four or forty eight hour tests, and so you'd come to the ballpark, and if you show up with a hundred one fever, then yeah, you're going to get put in a side room and sent home and and quarantined for a while and tested surely all the time. I think for everybody else, it said they'd be tested a couple times a week, and if you don't, uh, you know, show signs, let's say you you walk in on a Monday. And you don't show signs. You um, you you take a test. You take a temperature. Um, well, you've got 24 or 48 hours to, to get the results. And I think you're going to play a baseball game anyway that day. So I think that's why the precautions are in place. And, of course, from the beginning, you and I have talked about how if we can get instant testing, then I think we, we for sure can get a season in. Uh, I think they will still figure out all these finances and, and find a way to to agree on that. But to me, if you're still dealing with 24 or 48 hour, 48 hour testing, that's not nearly as instant as, as 
I would like it to be, and I'm not an infectious diseases person. I don't know how this works. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. there's a way to, to get quicker testing available and, and uh, enough of it that you can you know give some of it to sports. But I was curious what you thought about the, the health proposals. What's it, it's it's interesting. That my, my dentist is actually a big Pirates fan, uh, just a big baseball fan in general. And as he usually does, when I was in the, in the chair this morning for a uh, for a cleaning and exam, and um, now that we've opened up in that department a little bit, and he asked me, you know, what do you, what do you think? Are we going to play this year? And he, of course, as he always does, asked me that as he's poking around in, in my mouth with that little pointy thing. So my response was kind of like, ha, 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 ha. But what I was trying to tell him was that um, I, I think, you know, the, the health issues and, and questions are, are daunting uh, because there is so much, it seems, that we really don't know about this. And, you know, yeah. I'm just reading something today that says that, there, you know, there are studies that, uh, you know, uh, a cough or a sneeze can travel 15 feet in about five seconds or less. Um, our coughs so, and sneezes. Yeah. I think our coughs and sneezes are getting more powerful as we continue. In the, <laughs> yeah. At first it was first it was six feet, then it's a mask, and then it's. I hear that. Oh, if you if you're running, maybe it's like twelve feet. You're gonna spray. Man, mm-hmm. we're we're just so good at at projecting. Yeah, I mean, so, so we, you know, that you know, every time that you know, every time we, we we talk about that, something changes on that, and so there's, you know, the, the health issues are just so daunting because there's so many unanswered questions even at this point. But then beyond that, then I think the thing that's, that's really maybe even more challenging, because at least with the, at least with the health, health questions, you know, you can turn to, to medical science to get you through the money issue. Yeah. It just seems to be an ever heightening wall <laughs> between these, an ever widening chasm, however you want to describe it, that, that, that there is no middle ground and there seems compromise just even for a one year or a four month season, it just seems daunting at yeah. this point that these two sides that distrust each other deeply and with good reason, and in some cases maybe hate each other and with yeah. good reason. Um, I don't know if they're going to find a way to divvy up that not quite as large as in a normal season, but still rather sizable bag of cash that is sitting there waiting to be divvied up. So it, you know, yeah, it would be great. The country could really use something like having some ball on TV right now. I, I you know, I, I, I guess we, we've both said that before that it would be a healing thing, it would be a fun thing, it would be a uniting thing. Yeah. But as we head now toward June one, which uh, I think, you know, didn't Kenny Rosenthal speculate the other day that that might be kind of a, a deadline of maybe hard or soft, I don't know, but a deadline to mm-hmm. really come up with an agreement just so you can start to finalize a plan. Yeah, you know, we're here on May 20th right now. It's 10 days out, uh, 11 days out, and I just don't have a good feeling. Yeah, th- that's the same answer I gave. I'm not sure what, what Kenny said, but same answer I gave on the radio yesterday was you'd think you'd have to <laughs> figure something out in the next 10 days if it's going to work at all because mm-hmm. you need to get guys in, in camps by early to maybe June 10th or something like that, early June. And if you're going to play in July and you need to get the ball rolling here and fast. And you're right. These are pretty monumental hurdles to get over from the financial perspective. The optimist in me says, man, I think they'll find a way, you know, I think these are just opening volleys maybe and, and they'll, both sides will give a little bit. But the, the initial impressions that I've gotten from players is 
not necessarily a, you know, a hell no, but it's, it's a, well, we got to see what's actually going to be the proposal because right now they're, you know, they, I think they, the union really easily said at the beginning of all this said, you know what, let's, let's, let's take a prorated portion. Let's agree to that. We'll set some guidelines as to when we can start. And so they already feel like they took some pretty major concessions. And, uh, in, in now we're in a situation the owners are, are getting ready, or at least were a week ago to propose a 50, 50 revenue split. And the players are saying, well, we already took a cut. And so now I don't ever expect fans who may be out of work, maybe struggling to, uh, to keep a paycheck, maybe furloughed, maybe taking a partial paycheck. I don't expect them to feel bad for, uh, Blake Snell that he's only going to get a couple million this year instead of the, you know, handful, handfuls of million he may have gotten previously. And from every player I spoke to this week, they did not love the way he came off in that video. If you don't know the video I'm talking about, yeah. Blake Snell went on Twitch and basically said like, it's too I'm dangerous. Get mine. Yeah, it's too dangerous for, for me not to get paid. And you get the obvious reaction of fans saying, your job's dangerous. How about mine? How about, you know, the, the, the trash collectors, the grocery people, the policemen, the fire people, the, the people who have to go out, the truck delivery drivers, um, everybody who's, who's really going the extra mile here and putting themselves in harm way, the healthcare providers, the, the frontline workers, there are people taking real risks here. So don't come to me and tell me that, you know, you're not going to play for anything less than, than your full prorated salary. And so players definitely didn't appreciate the way he came off. However, the points he made did resound with it with, with a good number of them. I think the majority of them is safe to say is they feel that they've already taken concessions. They don't see any reason why the, the owners, they don't think the owners have proven that, um, they need to have a 50-50 split. <laughs> the owners very conveniently were the first ones to the press, right? They said, oh, I mean, we, hey, I'm not going to complain about leaks. I love a good leak. I'm a media member. I'm a reporter. But how convenient, right, that the owners were able to to get get uh, the whole world, the whole baseball world thinking, ooh, we've got a proposal coming. as a 50-50 split. They've The owners have found a way to save baseball. And then it's up to the players to be like, well, wait a minute. We already agreed to a financial situation, <laughs> and you're changing the mm-hmm. terms now without even letting us uh, respond. And so inevitably, the players start to push back, and fans start to say, you greedy players. Um, and, and then we get into this arguing match between why are you defending the billionaires uh, you know, at the expense of the millionaires, and fans ultimately don't care. They don't care who's making millions and who's making billions. They don't care if the Pirates are making gobs of money or no money at all or losing money. They're saying, let's just get this over with so we can play baseball. Every one of you is greedy. That's what the narrative is right now. So I hear that. I understand. I do not expect fans to be okay with this this whole conversation, which is why it playing out in the press is not really in the best interest of baseball, but as a member of the press, it is in the best interest of the press. And... What I, what I, where, where I can, where I saw some people listening a little more to the player's argument was last week I laid out, um, maybe the Blake Snell argument doesn't, you don't, you don't care about that. But I think the, if you take like the, the, the median salary in the majors, it's less than a million dollars. And let's take a guy who's on a major league minimum, which so many of these young guys are making major league minimum 500 something and change. If you prorate, Let's take Brian Reynolds. He has not signed a contract extension. He would be worth a lot of money if he were on the open market, but the way baseball works, you're uh, able to take the minimum for the first couple of years, and that's really it. And 
if you were to factor in the prorated salary and then factor in what he'd make in a 50-50 split and then factor in the the agency fees and all this other stuff, he'd probably be taking home in the neighborhood of, of $150,000. Um, and to you and me, that might sound really good, right? But mm-hmm. to, to players, is it? I don't know that it's going to be worth it to every player to take home that portion of your salary um, and go play, a, you know, go play 82 games plus postseason plus some spring training, go away from your family and all. You might be in a comfortable enough financial position to say, you know what, I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to leave Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds' wife is pregnant. I don't want to leave my pregnant wife. Don't want to leave my family. Don't want to have to pay for an, for a season in season home. I'm gonna stay here, not take that money, and just wait for the 2021 season. I could see why a player would say that. I don't think fans are gonna forgive it. But uh, but that's where we are. I, I really don't think the majority of players are making, you're taking home nearly as much money as fans think they are. And so I do think it goes a little bit beyond greed. There is a little bit of uh, common sense or, or, or you know, uh, basically I think players have a choice here. They are not healthcare workers. They are not people who... Um, who are, you know, risking for the, the greater good. Baseball, sure, we'd like to have it back, but if players actually truly believe that they're putting themselves at risk and taking a big pay cut to do it, then I can see why they'd, I can see why they'd say no. Yeah, I think at, at the end of it, 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 it comes down to that, you know, if, I think somebody flowed the other day that, you know, Bryce Harper was kind of on the fence about coming back and like, oh, what, what would the season be like with Bryce, well, Bryce Harper? I'm like, well, uh, there'd be another guy hitting home runs. Um, it wouldn't be Bryce Harper, but maybe it's Mookie Betts or maybe it's somebody else. Um, I, I think the average fan, yeah, you're right. A lot of these arguments and, and, and things, they're obviously it's important to the, the people involved, but when, when you take it out a, a degree or two of separation, the, the fans just, just want to see ball. And if they aren't going to get baseball, then they're going to just get football. <laughs> and if they don't get football, maybe they'll, Get more hacky sack tournaments on ESPN or, or, or whatever they're, they're getting these days. Um, the, the arguments each way in the other, they don't resonate with the fans. And I don't necessarily yeah. blame the fans for that, you know, because this, the sports are, are meant to be the distraction. And especially in these times, you know, Lord knows we, we need the distraction. And if it doesn't happen, then they'll just look for something else. So, Baseball can, can, you know, go down this road and it has before and we've, we're just kind of, we've been kind of spoiled for the past, you know, 10, 15 years because we've, we've had labor peace. But when I first broke into this, in this business as a ball writer was in the early nineties and it was a very tumultuous era. I mean, the, the first season I ever covered baseball full time was shut down by a strike. Um, and I remember thinking, well, I guess just the way it is. You never know, you know, if, you know, you're going to be covered a season that, that's not going to finish because of just the labor situation anymore. But then those days kind of went away and I think we all got acclimated to that. But we've been talking the past couple of three years about how the, you know, the, 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 the animosity between these two sides with that CBA negotiation looming has become real. You know, it's, it's real and it's true, Stephen, <laughs> as the former skipper would say. And, I think now that we're in a crisis situation where things are so out of the ordinary, but those core issues are still there. Yeah. They're just as important. They're just as hard set on each side with opinion and stances. It seems though kind of silly in the light of where we are in the, in the world, but 
those issues are still there. They don't go away. So it, it kind of underscores them a little bit more. And I, I've, you know, I've had some people ask me too, like, you know, well, while they're shut down and while they're trying to negotiate a, a shortened 2020 season, why don't they just, you know, use this time and, and redo the whole CBA at this point? They're talking anyway. Yeah. I remember thinking, well, that, there's a lot there that's got to be talked about. And if you want them to do that, there definitely will be no baseball in 2020. Oh, yeah. So, because there are so many issues and, and the divide is so deep that, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure, you know, I, coming into this, I, even before this had happened, even a year or two ago, you know, I was starting to think that, you know, we're going to have a, a shutdown in a couple of years, either as a strike or a lockout or something when that CBA expires, because there are some serious issues there and things really need to be reworked at a basic level. Just a lot of the economics of the game, the machinations of, of how the money is divided and, and paid out really have to be shaken to their core, I think, the way things are going. And then when you throw in d- developments like the uh, just the advent of legalized gambling and the effect of that on, on baseball and other sports, there's so many things that weren't there even just three or five years ago that you, you just can't solve it in a couple of months. So you, you yep. can't put all those issues aside, even, even if it means just starting a, a, a three-month mini-season. There are so many things there that have to be worked out. So the risk of sounding too doomy and gloomy here. Uh, yeah, I do. Do we see baseball? A week ago, I would have said, sure. Yeah. Now, I don't know. 50-50. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, these next 10 days, they have a lot, a lot to figure out. The ball is going to be in the players union's court. They're going to be given a proposal that they certainly will not like. I think it'll probably be voted down. And it's a question of whether or not they are willing to, the, the league and union are willing to work really hard to to hammer something out that that works and ultimately the union needs players to buy in um you know if if a bunch of your stars decide it's not worth it then yeah does the whole union shut down and say never mind we're not playing i don't know i don't know we'll have to we'll have to to see what happens there there <laughs> we're not going to get in this situation where the union opts out none of its players play and we see all minor leaguers playing like the the <laughs> league wouldn't would just would just fold the tent for the year if they had all minor leaguers playing especially when Ke- yeah. Kevin Kramer is gone. So uh <laughs> there you go. So yeah, we'll 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 hold our breath and see. I am hopeful that by by next week when we we tape we're going to have a little more clarity and and uh at least an idea of of which way the union is leaning. Well, there's a lot of ground we cover here today. All the way from from uh breaking and entering to uh to grand theft. <laughs> all, the, all the way from 1960 and and Bill Mazeroski to 2020 and Kevin Kramer. Yeah, it's a lot to swallow. So we'll let folks uh, maybe play this again in their car or uh, maybe if they're taking a little picnic in the backyard and, and listen to it again and try to absorb it all upon a re-listen. Thanks for listening this one time around, though, and uh, we'll talk to you later.